0: It's Thursday, May 4th, 2023, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Roides, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about Californian policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes with Hoover's California on Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Lou Hanian, Hoover Institution senior fellow and professor of economics and director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on Your Mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Um, let's get right to it. Nordstrom's department store this week announced it's closing all its stores in San Francisco. This is the latest in a wave of closures uh, that has included Anthropology, Gap, and Whole Foods. Uh, the reasons, as we've discussed before on the show, is soaring crime rates. Uh, the company's chief store officer, that is Nordstrom, wrote an email to, to, um, to staff, quote, the dynamics of the downtown San Francisco market have changed dramatically over the past several years, impacting customer foot traffic to our stores and our ability to operate successfully. What kind of dynamics, you might ask? It has been reported that at Whole Foods, in the case of Whole Foods, for that 13 months that it was open, workers were frequently threatened with weapons, security guards were assaulted, homeless were throwing food and defecating inside the store, and there were fentanyl overdoses in the bathrooms. In total, nearly 600 911 calls were made from that store. But let's stay on this issue of fentanyl, Lee. uh, You wrote about uh, this topic in your California On Your Mind web column um, for this week. Um, You write that in 2013, there were less than 100 fentanyl deaths in the state. In 2021, which is the latest year of which data is available, that number is nearly 6,000. Governor Newsom this week um, began his crackdown on open-air markets in San Francisco uh, to combat this menace. Uh, Lee, can you talk a little bit about your column and what is being done or not done in the Golden State to combat the sale and use of this legal drug?
1: Yeah, well, Jonathan, um, you know, up up to now, really very little has been done to deal with fentanyl. And this goes just way beyond the usual types of debates about how to deal with um, drug abuse, because fentanyl is about as toxic um as anthrax <laughs> is what i found out while i was researching this column just uh just one eighth of a teaspoon so roughly a pinch of salt of uh a powdered fentanyl is enough to kill 100 adult males um Goodness. just three milligrams will will we'll kill will kill an adult male um so this is incredibly toxic and it is uh it's devastating the state right now as you mentioned um, under 100 overdose deaths in 2013, and now we're up to about um, 6,000 within the state. Um, Just in the last four years, San Francisco has recorded 2,000 fentanyl overdose deaths. Um, The death rate by fentanyl overdose is about twice as much uh, at the height of the pandemic as was COVID, to give you an example of just how serious this is. Um, About 6,500 to 7,000 overdoses are reversed. Uh, every year in San Francisco, um, so it's really just it's really destroying the city, in, in my opinion. And, um, and as you mentioned, Newsom, um, you know, to much uh, of his own self-congratulatory fanfare, has deployed some uh, California Highway Patrolmen uh, within the city um, in the neighborhoods that have been most affected by fentanyl. Um, so we'll see if that makes much of a difference. Um, but you know, one other issue I touched on in the column. Is that even if there are more arrests of, of street-level drug dealers, it's unclear whether, whether anything is going to happen because I found out there's a 2016 California state law which effectively says that victims of human trafficking can effectively commit crimes and uh, and use the and, and use the idea that they were victims of trafficking as a legitimate uh, criminal defense, and that's exactly what is happening in San Francisco. There were two cases uh, against two Honduran men who were were arrested for selling fentanyl in San Francisco. Um, There was no no question really that they were were guilty. The police had uh, enormous amounts of evidence and arrested them on undercover buys. And so what they did was they claimed they were victims of human trafficking from Honduras. They provided no evidence of this. And the DA's office provided enormous evidence uh, that they almost certainly weren't victims of human trafficking. Long story short, the both trials ended in hung juries, which meant that both of these drug dealers were let go. And the D, DA's office has chosen not to refile, uh, not to refile charges. So we have the state law that's being abused, that basically is a get-out-jail-free card. For any foreign any foreign drug dealer who is illegally in the state um, and who is selling uh, fentanyl, and one of these one of these fellows said, "I still owe my coyote," which is the term used for someone who smuggled them over the border. I still owe my coyote nine thousand dollars, and you feel like saying, "Okay, well, go back on the streets, have at it, and, and go go ahead and earn your nine thousand dollars and pay off your coyote." It is. Um, it's just absolutely ridiculous uh, and at the state level um, you know really very little is being done um, to to deal with this the um the state uh public health uh committee uh has essentially refused uh up to uh last week to listen to new legislation about fentanyl. Um, It's a very, very progressive group. Um, They essentially see everything associated with dealing with drug abuse in the state now, uh, any new legislation as um, hearkening back to what they consider to be the failed war on drugs. So Jonathan, um, I'm very pessimistic whether we're gonna deal with this at all effectively, and I suspect we will lose many, many more people in California to fentanyl deaths.
2: Yeah, well, Lee, kudos to you for timing here, because as Jonathan mentioned, this is the uh, week that the governor's uh, much-vaunted, quote-unquote, crackdown began in San Francisco. Um, but I would note that this crackdown is sort of like what the Obama, uh, the Biden administration has done in uh, Texas with the border, where the announcer is sending 1,500 troops down there, and they're doing administrative work. And so the question here is, what exactly are the CHP and the California National Guard deployments doing in San Francisco? Uh, I believe the San Francisco Chronicle, Lee and Jonathan, uh, actually had reporters out uh, yesterday on Wednesday looking around for signs of you know, boots on the ground to see people making arrangements or do anything. They didn't find anything. And so I guess they're going to do kind of behind the scenes intelligence gathering or not. But, you know, Lee, what I think we have going on here is a, is a cultural clash, if you will. The governor, who's a former San Francisco mayor, ironically enough, comes into san francisco walks around sees things for himself doesn't tell the media by the way that he's coming which we'll get into in the next segment and then announces this very dramatic deployment to deal with it um so he is taking this from a law enforcement angle but if you talk to local leaders they don't like the law enforcement approach to this, Lee and Jonathan. Uh, they want to create what are so called safe consumption sites, and this essentially means that uh, instead of policing, they want to sort of you know shepherd people into certain locations to to do drugs, to shoot up, or get high, or what have you. And this is a clash, plain and simple. Do we treat the fentanyl crisis and drug use in San Francisco as a criminal crisis or a public health crisis?
1: Well, exactly right. So during um, when Newsom uh, made his pronouncement, he was very careful to say and in the normal gavin self-congratulatory sort of over the top self-absorbed way he has of speaking uh he talks about we're deploying uh the highway patrol uh and the national guard here in san francisco to deal with uh those people who sell this toxic poison within our cities and we're gonna, and we're gonna get we're going to get this under control. And he was very careful to say, now let me be very clear, this is not about targeting uh, those are our fellow citizens who are struggling with substance abuse. But Bill, you know uh, years ago, years ago Europe had uh, many European cities had enormous drug problems because they essentially tolerated open air drug abuse. And that is no longer the case. Um, you there there the, the one can use drugs in, in, in European cities, but uh, if you're out there shooting up on the streets and passing out on a sidewalk, um you're hauled you're hauled off uh, into the jailhouse. Um, and that would be seen as anathema within Newsom's party. Um, so I don't see how one successfully deals with this unless one has a clear policy towards getting people off the street, uh, and I don't believe that that offering a safe injection sites is really the answer.
2: Now, you asked, Lee, uh, what will it take to get Sacramento's attention and deal with this more forcefully? Uh, I will rather cynically say that it takes a famous surname in this regard. In the 1990s, we did all sorts of criminal justice reform in California. Some of it moved along, but it got a boost of sorts when Ennis Cosby, who was the son of Bill Cosby, uh, was murdered alongside a California highway. His car, had, I think, had a flat tire, and somebody came up and randomly killed him. And suddenly, my God, it's Bill Cosby's son. We have a problem in California. Go back to AIDS in the 1980s, Lee John. Jonathan and and it's a terrible health tragedy going on. And then we find out that Rock Hudson has AIDS and it kind of takes off new levels. So part of me thinks that not until somebody with a very famous surname in California in San Francisco or Los Angeles in particular, somebody, you know, either with star power connected to star power, not until that happens, maybe fentanyl doesn't get the attention legislature should, but you mentioned the potency of it. Lee, my God, this is just, I mean, you're, you're the father of a, uh, of a, you know, of a teenage son. This must be every parent's nightmare in this day and age just to worry about your son somehow randomly coming across this drug.
1: Yeah, you know, Bill, um, paramedics. So I mentioned that there's there's up to 7,000 fentanyl overdoses that are reversed each year in San Francisco with a product called Narcan. Um, uh, And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just awful to, it's just absolutely awful to think about. Paramedics, when they administer Narcan, you you look at them um, a lot of the times they're wearing what looks like hazmat suits. I mean they, they look like they're ready to go up in, in a spacecraft and land on the moon. Um, they are covered from head to toe uh, wearing hazmat suits um, because this is such a remarkably to- toxic um, uh, chemical. It is as I mentioned, it's it's approximately as uh, as fatal uh, as anthrax, which of course is a well known bioweapon. Um, so it's uh, it's horrible, um, and it goes way beyond you know the debates that people have had for years about well you know what do you do about drug abuse how do you how do you deal with drug addiction? There's a libertarian perspective that says well you know let people do what they're going to do. Um, I used to be more inclined towards that way of thinking, but what I've seen is that addicts, um, uh, whether you, whether people care about whether personally they're destroying their lives or not, um, they end up becoming wards of the state and very expensive wards of the state. Um, and when you think about the involvement, potential involvement of children, and 224 kids uh, between the ages of 15 and 19 died of fentanyl in 2021, um, it is just uh, horrifying to think about.
2: Yeah, if we could loop back to uh, Nordstrom for a minute. Uh, Jonathan mentioned the introduction. Yeah, Nordstrom is pulling the plug on San Francisco. Banana, the Republic has done so. Gap anthropology. Lee and Jonathan, it reads like a suburban mall of where where your kid would hang out on a weekend and Whole Foods as well. Uh, Interesting stat I saw today uh, in the ongoing saga of what's happening to San Francisco. We talk about job loss. We talk about office vacancy and so forth. Here's a new one uh, for you to chew on, Lee. Cell phone use. Um, Study shows that cell phone use in San Francisco is down 30 32%. It's just, it's a dead city. It is,
1: it is. Uh, And and city leaders are trying to paint a much rosier picture and talking about various plans they have of resuscitating downtown. Um, But the sooner people really push the panic button and pull the emergency cord, uh, that's really what's required um, to get San Francisco trying to turn around in the right direction. And front and center, the number one thing that has to be dealt with um, is homelessness, drug abuse, and crime. And all of those are un- fundamentally uh, interconnected. And until San Francisco does that, nothing's really going to change. Then the economy will continue to suffer. Um, and Bill, you know, the the program or the, the policy paper that was put together by an urban planning uh, consulting group that was... Um, Hired by uh, by private San Frans- by a private San Francisco business group, um, it didn't once mention uh, indirectly homelessness, crime, or drug abuse. Um, so we you know, we can continue to pretend uh, that the emperor has a new suit to close, uh, but we know exactly how that story ends.
2: Well, it is. And just think of us in terms of real estate, if you wanted to lure somebody back into San Francisco to live or work there, uh, eyesores would always, caught your, always catch your attention when you're first looking at a house. And if the person next door is shooting up, there's a homeless encampment next door to the house, you're not going to buy the house. And this is a problem in San Francisco. And the final, note, that we can move on uh, to the idea of uh, safe consumption sites, one thing that San Francisco suffers from horribly, Lee, is nimbyism. And they've gone through this issue for decades when it comes to homelessness. Somebody always wants to build a homeless shelter, and then guess what, when you find them, location for it the people in that location just have an absolute conniption i just you know be very curious to see what's going to happen if indeed the city goes through with the plan for safe consumption sites whose neighborhood
1: are they going to put it in yeah yeah absolutely there'll be enormous pushback um and as well there should be um there are people who are paying their taxes uh and uh you know when they brought when they purchased that house or they 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 signed on that apartment lease they did not part of that part of that deal was not having people shooting up fentanyl um 10 feet away
0: yeah uh John let's let's talk a little bit more about Governor Newsom uh Bill in your California on your mind column released today uh you focus on Gavin Newsom's Wonderlust uh he really loves traveling he loves uh he was just in uh, Washington DC at the White House correspondence dinner last weekend which you explained is an effort to keep himself in the buzz of national politics. Unless Biden steps aside, Newsom is not likely to run in 2024. But as you write, the governor did succeed in having his recent messaging in his campaign ads run in uh, red States and in social media integrated throughout uh, Biden's 2024, first 2024 campaign ad. Uh, Biden's video describes how his administration stands for individual uh, freedom. Quote, Maga extremists are lining up to take those freedoms. Biden says, listing up issues that is based worries about uh, banning books, tax cuts to the wealthy, reducing social security payments and abortion bans. But are all these efforts paying off for Governor Newsom when his own state is confronted with daunting challenges? Uh, the, the San Francisco Chronicle penned an editorial a few days ago saying as much and wants uh, the governor to focus on housing. Uh, but this housing aside, where else should um, the governor focus his time
2: well, I'm going to ask Lee to give me some thoughts, and I have a few of my own. But, you know, if the idea that uh, imitationist is a serious form of flattery, Gavin Newsom should feel very flattered because that – Three-minute uh, video put up by the president's re-elect campaign making his case for another four years. He just throws around F-bombs, F being freedom. And this is kind of Gavin Newsom 101, whose you know, inaugural address in January sprinkled with the word freedom. It's a word he tossed around last summer in running ads in Florida against Ron DeSantis. DeSantis, of course, hailing Florida as a freedom state, so I think we all need to find a different word. It's getting overused right now. Um, but the governor is succeeding at the national level in terms of getting noticed as being a force uh, and being very ready waiting in the wing should something happen to Joe Biden and this is kind of. I call it vulture politics, where you're just kind of sort of circling around like a buzzard and, you know, waiting to see if there's a carcass to dive in on. But so you're right, Jonathan, he's trapped in terms of 2024 right now if Biden is running, but 2028 sits out there. Um, what caught me about being the White House correspondent Dinner, he didn't go to the dinner itself. He came back to California, but he worked the cocktail circuit that precedes the dinner. And why did he do that? As it's chock full of national reporters, the kind of people who write profiles, who do a top 10 list of candidates, who are going to come out to California sometime and write flattering profiles of him. So very smart at his point. But Lee gets the question. And Jonathan mentioned the San Francisco Chronicle, of all publications, went came down pretty hard on the governor the other day and said he needs to stay at home and focus on California business. And Lee and their uh, editorial they focused on housing. And I want to get your thoughts on housing and what else. Um, I'll give you something he might want to get involved in right now. And that's the Hollywood writer strike, which uh, it's not just about showbiz, Lee, but it's about the Southern California economy. Because if you don't have scripts, you don't have production. A lot of people are out of jobs. So what's the governor going to do? He's said he'd get involved in the strike if both sides ask, but I don't think the studio's going to ask anytime soon. I'll give you another one to ponder Lee. That's the teacher strike in Oakland, which began today on Thursday. Um, Teachers want more money. Uh, there are bills in legislature that would increase teachers pay by 50%. But why doesn't the governor sit both sides down and, and get them to end the strike? I think it's their third strike in something like three years. Uh, every day they're on strike is one less day that a kid gets educated in Oakland, and that's the last thing could happen in a city like Oakland. So, yeah, I put him in the strikes, Lee. But, you know, it does seem the Chronicle's reading your stuff, Lee, because they did make a beeline toward housing. Well,
1: um, you know, last year uh, when you know when Newsom ran for you know successfully um, ran for a second term, um, the Chronicle endorsed him. No surprise there. And Bill, the Chronicle wrote the following words um, when they when they wrote their endorsement, they put a little bit of a proviso uh, and wrote California's problems are far too urgent to indulge our executive office being used as a campaign commercial. Um, Bill, in my opinion, that's exactly what has happened with right. Newsom over the last few months. He's gone, he's gone to southern states, um, you know, with this ten million dollar pack. Uh, it is absolutely a campaign commercial. And Bill, I don't know if you saw this, but there is uh, an uh, MSNBC um, reporter named Stephanie Rule who interviewed Newsom recently, right. uh, and she said, uh, she said, Governor Newsom, and he responded by saying, I love when you say governor. And she responded by saying, "Not president." And his response was, "No, not is Gavin." Yes. So he had a little bit of a slip of the tongue there, uh, regarding regarding you know her 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 tongue-in-cheek uh, remark about not president, and he uh, he stumbled a bit there. So we have a governor who I think has essentially been on a wall. Um, right. As far as I can tell, when you look at the state's major problems, you mentioned housing. Um, you mentioned schools uh, in terms of what's going on in Oakland <laughs> and Oakland has just a terribly performing school district. And as you noted, the teachers have been on strike now. Yeah, I think this is the third time in in, in a few years. Um, so schools, housing, the business climate, um, taxes go along with business climate. Um, these are all issues that um, have not made, there's been no progress whatsoever since Newsom has been governor, and he's been governor now close to four and a half years. Um so I think there's only so long that a person can govern just by righteous indignation. And that's how I see Newsom has been has been governing. Um there's always in, indignation about something and and 99% of the time it's about the Republican Party and it's about um it's about abortion and it's about uh maybe real or oftentimes imaginary threats to what he calls freedom and democracy those seem to be the knee-jerk reaction words that he uses but my god the, there's there are 13 million people in the state who qualify for medicaid which which amounts to a family of 3 with a household income of less than $41,000 per year um right. so <laughs> about that think about living in the state of california family three less than forty one thousand dollars per year um what do those people what do those people have to say who is who is who has those people's backs um so the governor hasn't delivered um there's no question about that and it's i'm glad the chronicle calls him out on that um you know bill i think i would be so happy if he intervened in the oakland um schools strike uh and brought them together because the, uh... It is it is devastating to think about what is going on with the education of those kids, even outside yeah. of the strike. It's a horribly performing school district. And well, don't uh, don't
2: don't don't hold your breath on that one, Lee. I mean, did he get involved at all in terms of pushing uh, kids back in the classroom? No, he just sat by and let the California teachers Association dictate terms. Uh, the problem with getting involved in the teacher strike is he alienates teachers unions, which he does not want to do. The problem with getting involved in the writer's strike, Lee, is if he picks a side, I assume, as a progressive Democrat, he would side with those struggling writers then he's upsetting a lot of people on the west side who produce uh, entertainment who write checks to candidates and so he has to kind of choose money before um, you know muscular politics if you will so he'll just as soon stay out of it but you know, housing, I think, is really important here because it is just a bad MO of this governor, which is he loves to come out with big, fanciful ideas. And you wrote a very good column, which I would suggest to our viewers to go back and revisit about about how the housing plan is coming up shortly. You know the numbers on what he proposed and where he fell short, which you can tell us. Um, but it's just it's kind of vintage Gavin Newsom in that he throws out a big idea and then... The devil's not in the detail. The devil is in the follow through and he just doesn't follow up on it and really do the heavy lifting to get it across the finish line. Same thing when he's mayor of San Francisco said he would solve uh, um, uh, homelessness in San Francisco in a decade and then bailed on san francisco to become lieutenant governor he just doesn't follow through on these plans and here with housing is a big problem because housing gets to the heart of so many issues in california including the the rather tenuous middle class existence which i think we're going to get to in a moment because the governor said that in that same interview stephanie ruled that california is a low-tax stately which i think might come as something of surprise to you as an economist um bill i just i
1: don't know i don't know where that's coming from um the tax foundation which is um a highly regarded um, research center, nonpartisan think tank in DC. All they do, all they do is focus on tax issues. Um, And California is the second highest tax state in the country. Um, It is about seven times worse than the lowest tax state, um, which is Alaska and (laughs) Vermont. um, Our good friend, Bernie Sanders, uh, Vermont is the highest tax state just by a hair, literally right. just by a hair. California and Vermont for all practical purposes are tied. So there's no question California is a high tax state. So I don't know where Newsom is coming up with with uh with those types of numbers. Um but Bill, you know, he reminds me of a um of uh of an event MC who starts out the uh, who starts out and looks at the audience and gets them all riled up, and, and he walks off the stage, and then there's nothing. That, there's nothing that follows that.
2: You um, called him. So uh, yeah. You called him. You called him game show Gavin, didn't you?
1: <laughs> One time, I I called him Game Show Gavin. Uh, I I, yeah. I can't take credit for that. I think there were, I think there were a few I think there were a few newspaper editorial columns that had him that had him called a uh, Game Show Gavin when he was handing out fistfuls of dollars to try to get people vaccinated. Well,
2: you know, to close COVID. out on the tax, to close out on the taxing, Lee. I think here's the issue as I see it. You can take a tax study and you can twist it a million ways if you want to. The issue in California, it's not just taxes; it's livability and. It's just as you're a middle class Californian, good luck in this barbell economy living. And what's the best indicator of this? Go to U Haul and look at U Haul's annual study of people leaving states and people are leaving California. Some people might leaving it by choice because they could do remote work elsewhere. But I'd argue a lot of those people, Lee and Jonathan, are leaving because of necessity, because they just can't afford a home in California making middle class wages.
1: Oh, absolutely. The the median, the state's uh, median home price is about 800000 Um, there's about, I think, 20% of Californians who could afford the monthly payments, including insurance and property taxes. But Bill, uh, so those are the kind of statistics. If people are interested, you can go to the California Association of Realtors. Um, They've got great data, and they present affordability statistics at the state level, also at the county and the city level. And those statistics are grim. What, right. the, but those this, those statistics are even worse because those affordability statistics assume that a buyer has the has 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 cash that can close the deal, which is a conventional mortgage is twenty percent, twenty percent on an eight hundred thousand dollar home is one hundred and sixty, add in a few more bucks for the other types of closing costs. Bill of those people living in California who who, who have never owned a home hardly any of those people have $175,000. So right. uh, absolutely, people are leaving this state uh, and it's because they're looking for a better way of life. It, it And that better way of life is they're gonna go somewhere where they can afford a home that's not gonna cost them $800,000. They're gonna go to a state where they can buy a decent home for $300,000. And there's a lot of states that provide
0: those opportunities.
2: I'd be curious to see polls of those displaced Californians to see whether or not they would vote for Gavin Newsom for president, but time will tell.
0: Uh, Back in uh, Sacramento, and more more on Gavin Newsom. Ahead of his uh, May revise of the budget, uh, he rejected a state senator's uh, plan that would boost the tax rate on corporate income by another two percentage points and pause businesses' net operating loss deduction in times of budget emergencies. Uh, Nevertheless, despite a massive $100 billion surplus last year, This year, there is a $22.5 billion deficit. Uh, While Newsom wants to rein in spending, um, many powerful lawmakers want to expand that budget. With a June 15th deadline looming, there's a three-way split among the Capitol's Democrats. Uh, This showdown may mark the first time in state history that the budget won't be passed on time. Uh, Gentlemen, what do you see as the best compromise here?
2: Well, let me take this one. Uh, Having worked for a governor, uh, these are not fun times to be in the governor's office when you are looking. Uh, Long story short, uh, the governor puts out a budget proposal in January, then he gets uh, tax receipts in the spring, and then uh, come the middle of May, he puts out the revised budget, the so-called May revise, and then that's what he uh, gives to lawmakers, then they hammer out Uh, We're to go from there. It's an easy thing to do when there's money to spend because everybody gets a piece of the pie. It's not an easy thing to do when you're in the red, as California is right now, and then something has to be cut. But as you mentioned, Jonathan, um, yeah, there's a difference of opinion as to what the state Senate wants to do, what state assembly even want to do, and what the governor wants to do. And nobody wants to cut. Instead, there is this instinct by the state Senate to pass taxes, even though they tried to disguise it as – in this case, is a, uh, a bill that only impacted about 2,500 companies in California. Lee, uh, The advertiser is generating a lot of revenue, about $6 billion, uh, argued that it would be temporary and so on and so forth. But Newsom, to his credit, he hung tough on this one. He wouldn't buy what they were selling. But now he has to sit down and maybe this kind of curbs wonderlust because he has to actually stay in Sacramento and negotiate with these guys, Lee. So here we're going to see what happens now because California does have a constitutional provision that requires a balanced budget. And as Jonathan mentioned, does require a Budget by June fifteenth, so it's uh, in place by the July first fiscal deadline. What's going to happen here? And so, you know, welcome to the fun zone, Lee.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, the governor needs to show leadership and establish leadership um, within his party. And (laughs) um, what is so sad about the state is that there's no sense in which the um, the super majorities in the Senate and the Assembly can sensibly think about living within. living within a moderate sized budget. Uh, California is one of the highest spending states in the country. Uh, last year, this, well, we're in the current fiscal year, um, 300 plus billion dollar budget. It works out to over $20,000 per California household. Uh, it's about 50% higher than it was just right before COVID. And um, I would love to hear from anyone who can tell me that that 50% increase in state government spending has led to any improvement in anything that's tangible. Housing? No. Schools? No. Water? No. Roads, bridges, highways? No. I can go down the list and there's been no improvement that I, I that I can see, or any statistics that I can observe shows there's absolutely no improvement whatsoever. Um, And so you've got Democrats saying, well, let's try to raise taxes some more. And Bill, interesting that you noted that uh, Newsom held tough on that. I'm really glad he did. All this kind of belies the idea that California is a low-tax state. If it was truly a low-tax state, then perhaps one might have a reasonable debate about adjusting taxes during during a difficult year. Uh, but when he declined that tax increase he noted well this is going to be really difficult for businesses and we've already right. got some pretty high, pretty high taxes on corporations and Bill you know when um, when the Democrats announced that oh well this will only really affect 2500 businesses those are enormous enormous businesses. Right. Um, and we know that we know that businesses are playing the state at twice twice as fast as they ever have in the past, um, including enormous businesses um, right. Tesla, Hewlett Packard, uh, Charles Schwab. Um, so I'm glad Newsom. I'm glad Newsom declined that, um, and I really hope he can make some headway with his colleagues in the Assembly and the Senate. Um, one thing, Bill, that um, that shocks me. Uh, I guess I shouldn't be shocked anymore after writing this column for the last five years. Um, <laughs> but when when Newsom when Newsom decided. To uh, to default on the state's nearly twenty billion dollar loan to the federal government, a loan they received to uh, to buttress um, the unemployment insurance fund, which had been raided to the tune of thirty four billion dollars by fraud that we spoke about uh, recently. Um, you know, Bill, I'm 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 su- I'm surprised that California defaulting on a loan of that size. There was hardly any. Any coverage whatsoever in the media. There was a, there was an op-ed in the Mercury. Um, I didn't see anything in the Times. There might have been a small story in the Sacramento Bee. Um, you know, you've 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 been really interested in the connection between Newsom and the media. Uh, yeah. I would say, if anything, they were really kind to him on this particular story because you know, where I said it's just egregious. If, you know, the fifth largest economy in the world defaulting on a twenty billion dollar debt to the federal government and our, our businesses are and are end up holding the bag on that.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. They didn't go after him on that, and yet they complain very much about the way they're treated. Cal Matters ran a piece. Uh... A couple of weeks ago, Cal Matters is kind of a watchdog, bulldog um, media entity in Sacramento. And they complained about just trying to do business with the, the Newsom administration, going to government PIOs, public information officers, and officials, and asking for comments. And they don't get calls returned, or sometimes they get calls returned, OG, oh, after the story is run, sorry to get back to you sooner. Sometimes they ask for questions in advance. I mean, it really is a remarkable, uh, remarkably dysfunctional relationship. They don't go after him. But, you know, I think Lee, the, the governor's in kind of a bind here right now in this regard. If you go back to 1991, uh, Pete Wilson comes to office, and he and Willie Brown sit down, and they have a horrible budget situation to deal with. There's a, something a $14 billion hole in a $43 billion budget. That's how small California's budget was back then. And Wilson and Brown craft out a deal where they agree to do temporary tax increases and cut spending. Um Good luck getting the Democrats to cut spending in Sacramento. But the governor has now said, I don't want to raise taxes. And when you think about it, Lee and Jonathan, by what he said to Stephanie Ruhle and going on his way to say that California is actually not a punitive tax state, to now turn around and have to slam taxes on people would be problematic. And then on top of that, Lee and Jonathan, you know, he was in Washington, D.C., not just to hobnob with reporters, but also to do meetings with the Biden campaign. You know, if they wanted prominent Democrats, they're going to help raise money. So how is he going to, with an election coming up, make any kind of argument that the economy California is so wretched that we have to raise taxes. <laughs> the Biden White House doesn't want to hear that. No, and they don't.
1: They don't. And, um, and Bill, it's you know it's interesting um, when we think about the changes California could implement um, to create more opportunities, more more opportunities for businesses to stay, for for new businesses to start. To bring a lot of high school workers here to the state. Um again, I mean, the governor's the governor really has been um has been AWOL. Um the uh I'll just go back to the statement that you you know you you can't govern by righteous indignation year after year after year. And he's um, you know, he's he's been governor for what, four and a half years, um, ostensibly has what, three and a half years left. Um what uh, you know? What will people expect from him, and what can he re- realistically deliver? Can he focus enough? Can he follow through? I I, I see no evidence of that.
2: Well, we'll see what he does when he actually unveils the May revise and if he draws any lines in the sand. Um, and he's already made it clear he does want to go along with this uh, tax on California businesses. Will he say flat out in that announcement, no new taxes? Uh, will he call for any specific spending? Will he do this publicly, Lee and Jonathan? Will he do it behind the scenes in terms of negotiations? We'll see, but it's kind of a different set of you know skill set that he has not really needed for the past few years. So, you know, stay tuned to see what happens.
0: Gentlemen, let's... Um conclude this podcast on a lighter note, Um, the Western Western Conference semifinals continue tonight uh, for the NBA in San Francisco with a game two showdown between two California teams, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Golden State Warriors, led by their respective superstars, uh, LeBron James and Steph Curry. On previous podcasts, we talked about the cultural differences between California's North and South. Uh, The North is where the Techies reside and exert influence. The South is all about celebrity glamour. Gentlemen, can you pick a winner for this series? And two, despite all the problems we talk about in California, can you describe why this mashup is a gift to the game of basketball and all those who watch it around the world?
2: Oh, the winners are the would be the National Basketball Association, which going to these playoffs had the Glamorous Warriors as the sixth seed and the ultra-Glamorous Lakers as the seventh seed. Uh, this is kind of a clash of old money versus new money, if you will, and that the Lakers, you know, have been a glamour team going back to the 60s and 70s with Wilt Chamberlain and Jerry West, and then Shaq and Kobe and so on and so forth, Magic Johnson, of course. The Warriors have been prominent in the NBA since about 2014, 2015, so, you know, about a decade run here. So, yeah, it's the NBA. Uh, losers would be people like me who are on the West Coast right now, on the East Coast right now, in South Carolina, uh, so this game doesn't come out until 9 o'clock tonight, so I've got to make a decision. Do I stay up and watch it or not? This is the west coast advantage plain and simple but it really lee is kind of a fascinating cultural clash in this regard it is northern california versus southern california and just look at the people sitting courtside who sits courtside at lakers games besides leo Hadian? it's celebrities it's it's jack nicholson makes an appearance leonardo dicaprio denzel washington and so forth who sits courtside at warriors games tech bros and so you kind of see the southern california economy versus northern california economy um lee i don't know are people are people are now driving around santa barbara with their lakers flags on their uh on their cars or is it the bandwagon not left the uh <laughs> the uh, garage yet
1: yeah well bill you know this is um the nba had two dreams come true because yeah. the lakers were were uh, as at the as the seventh seed the lakers were playing the second seeded grizzlies and the warriors were the sixth seed and playing the third uh seed at, uh Sacramento Kings so Sacramento small market team Memphis small market team the nba is absolutely thrilled uh and they don't say this but they're absolutely thrilled the lakers beat the grizzlies and the warriors beat the kings and now the lakers and the warriors are playing are playing each other and you know before uh, before Tuesday's game, uh, and my goodness, even though I'm even though i living in uh, Southern California, um, my family and I are reading for the Warriors, they had that 14-0 run. I thought Curry was going to, again, pull a rabbit out of the hat right, and win that game. Before the series, I was calling it Warriors in six. Um, I still have a feeling the Warriors are going to prevail. Uh, I don't think it's going to be in six. I think it'll go all the way. Um, but um, it's great theater. Um, Curry is... Uh, Perhaps the greatest, uh, well, I think undoubtedly the greatest shooter in basketball of all time Right. And uh, LeBron James is a generational talent, so uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And game on Tuesday was was uh, was an exciting one. Certainly, yeah. There's just so much
2: so much energy and drama for a second-round playoff game. Keep in mind that whoever wins this series has to play yet again and win that series just to get to the NBA Finals. So to see this kind of intensity at this level is quite something. And you're absolutely right, Lee. LeBron James and Steph Curry, are the two transformative figures in pro basketball this century. LeBron is the all-time scorer, and Steph Curry has fundamentally changed the game. Now people shoot for three-point land. What also catches uh, my interest in this, Lee, is the arenas in which the two teams play. Um, The Lakers used to play in what was called Staples Center. It's now called, I think, CryptoCom Center. So it's, uh, it's named after a cryptocurrency platform. I'm not sure if I would want to have that uh, my arena right now, given what's happened to crypto, uh, the Warriors meanwhile used to play at Oakland Lee, and their arena carried the name of Oracle on it. They've since moved to a state-of-the-art arena in a rather gentrified pocket of San Francisco, and it bears the name of J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, why is that interesting, Lee? Because why J.P. Morgan Chase just uh, acquired a substantial majority of First Republic's assets. First Republic, of course, ironically failing due to bad financial decisions made with deposit money from all those tech pros who are sitting courtside in the Warriors game.
1: Yeah, it all comes full circle. Um and certainly the Warriors fan base at least those who are going to the games um has changed substantially since they moved from Oakland uh to yeah. uh to the Tony part of uh of San Francisco. Um you know Bill you know uh, a few years ago I did a uh, I did a UCLA fundraising event and Kareem Abdul Jabbar was there. Um ah. and so you know we, we I I was introduced to him, we chatted a bit. Um remarkably interesting fellow, extremely bright. Right. Um, so we were talking about the NBA, and um, here's what he had to say about Steph Curry. He said, you know, I and, and at, at the time we did this, uh, Kareem it was um, was helping coach uh, the Lakers. He was essentially to, uh, tutoring their big men. Uh, so he said, yeah, you know, one day I'm, I'm at the arena. I'm watching Curry. He's not missing 20, 30 times in a row from 35 feet. He said, that's unheard of. There was nobody right. when I played. That, that could come close to anything like this. Curry, we've simply never seen anyone uh, with anything close to that kind of basketball shooting skill.
2: Final note, uh, here in South Carolina, I have yet to find anybody who likes the Warriors. I don't mean as a betting favorite, but just likes them. And I don't really, if that's a function of just, they've been winning for too long, but they just find them kind of annoying and they really find the court scene annoying too. And I didn't think I'd see it in my lifetime, but maybe it's possible to supplant Los Angeles as a focus of California hate.
1: <laughs> I would have guessed it would have been the Lakers um, but yeah yeah they uh, they they are the t- Yeah, there. I think there's a lot of animosity towards them um, yeah they, they have been winning for an awful long time um, and you've got some players such as Draymond Green that don't necessarily uh, I think show their best uh, side always on national TV um, so anyway should, should be a great series
0: should be this has been very interesting and timely analysis gentlemen thank you for your time
2: Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lee. Always fun, li- Jess.
1: Take care.
0: You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the, around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen CA. Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California on Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroides sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening.